From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Women's educational opportunities in 19th century Georgia were few and far between. Finishing schools focused on genteel skills like art, music, and French rather than rigorous academics. The Lucy Cobb Institute changed that. It opened in Athens in 1859 and taught young women those skills along with math and science. The Institute cemented Athens as a place for women's education in the South. Fran Teague is professor of theater, film studies, and English at the University of Georgia. She and Kristen Gregg, a student at UGA, researched the topic. They presented their findings, Hidden Histories, Educating Women in Athens, Georgia, before 1919 at UGA earlier this year. I spoke with them about their work then and asked Fran about what women's education was like in Georgia in the 19th century. Oh, everyone's education was so different because it depended on things like race and class and sex. If you were a black woman, uh, African-American woman, for example, uh, as a slave, it was illegal to educate you. Uh, If you were of the yeoman class, you would have perhaps a little bit of education. In the 1850s, there was a study done that literacy for women was... Two-thirds of the population were literate. The rest of them weren't Hmm. in some parts of the region. But for a young woman who was white and of the elite class, you were probably educated at home by tutors, and then you might be sent out of the region to a seminary in the north. So what were some arguments for women's education at the time? Well, the first, there are two strong arguments. The first is from the heart. Parents love their children. And they would have a bright, curious little girl, and they would want that child to be able to follow her interests or what made her excited. And the other argument, as I sometimes say in class, is from the womb. Hmm. And that is to say they wanted children or young women to be better mothers. And they will talk over and over again, not about the child's brain, but about her becoming a mother. That was a given. So what were some of the arguments against educating women? Well, you know, they're only going to be mothers, and so that's really not terribly important. A lot of those arguments are turned around, and the argument from the heart is turned around as if you give her too many options, a woman will be unhappy with her lot in life. So, Fran, while you were researching this, what did you find about what women did learn in finishing schools? Well, as you said, in finishing schools, it was mostly things like music, art. I'm not sure why French is such a favorite language, but it is. Uh, there's a, one course that was taught, I believe, at Lucy Cobb in wax, fruit, and flower arranging, <laughs> which I always thought was a wonderful subject. A lot of morals, a lot of etiquette. So skills you may need, maybe some not. So, Kristen, the Lucy Cobb Institute was then founded in the 1850s. What was the Cobb family's interest in educating girls? Well, my, my research was primarily into the, the Cobb Institute itself, but the, the Cobb family was an Athens dynasty, essentially, very uh, popular, wealthy, prominent. Um, they were responsible for the creation of the Institute. Uh, the, the lawyer, Thomas R. Cobb, was the father of a, a young girl named Lucy, who um, was about to finish her education at the Athens Female Academy. And the, um, the Institute itself, the idea came from a letter that ran in the, the Southern Banner from an anonymous mother who was, again, um, advocating for educating women because it would make them better mothers, essentially. So did they start the school? Uh, what was the response? Uh, the Athens community loved it, essentially. The women came from all over the South. Um, the, the first class was about 300, I think, on the first day. 
So it had a very good response. So what was the Institute like in Athens? What did young women who attended experience or or learn? Well, uh, like you said before, there were gentility lessons, um, but they also had an uh, an education on math and science. Well, science came a little bit later, but um, they they were taught math, um, Latin, Bible studies, um, all sorts of different courses. Uh, Again, wax sculpture making. (laughs) But educating them beyond just being mothers. Yes, absolutely. So this was a critical year, of course, 1859, when the school opened in January. Uh, This is just before the Civil War. And the Lucy Cobb Institute reflected the norms of the South at the time. Fran, how did educational bodies like this spread Confederate viewpoints? Well, in this case, the principal who would ultimately take over the school, one of the teachers there, uh, was firmly committed to the values of the Confederacy, um, and she was eager to spread those values with her students. I guess the other thing to point out is that the family itself was very active. T.R.R. Cobb, the gentleman who helped to get the school open and who had it named for his daughter, was the person who spent a lot of time writing the Constitution of the Confederate States of America, Mm. and he would himself enlist and die in battle. The woman that you mentioned, is that Mildred Rutherford? Yes, and Kristen's the expert on her. All right, so Kristen, she eventually took over the Institute. How'd she get connected, and and what was her leadership like? Well, she was part of the the family, married into the the Cobbs, um, and she she was an excellent teacher. She wrote her own textbooks um, for her students, including Latin, math, um, oratory. Um, But she was, again, a very outspoken secessionist, uh, very against um, African-American students. She kept a slave on the campus. Um, So again, you're taking the good with the bad. She she did teach her students a lot. She brought um, Athens to see me civil chapel, um, which is a huge center, uh, cultural center for us now. But um, she she was very outspoken against um, African Americans attending the college, um, against the the South being part of the Union, all of that. She's also against women's suffrage, which oh, I yes. find terribly ironic. I'm speaking with UGA professor Fran Teague and UGA student Kristen Gregg, who researched the Lucy Cobb Institute, which really changed the game and brought women's education to Athens during the 20th century, during the 19th century, and also flourished in the 20th century. Fran, sorry. Sorry, it wasn't the only women's college, though. I want to just make it clear. There was also Wesleyan College down in Macon. You had Spelman College after the war, settled in Atlanta, and Decatur Female Seminary, which turned into Agnes Scott. And I think it's fascinating that Georgia has four really effective women's schools in the 19th century, even though the women who were not uh, able to get to those would often receive a very weak education. Okay, so why do you think that is, that why here in the South, in Georgia in particular, there were those opportunities? Oh, I think it was the communities. I mean, Athens is a college town. Those professors wanted their daughters getting an education. Macon clearly adopted Wesleyan early and spent a lot of, it was a matter of civic pride. Uh, Same thing in Atlanta. The slaves who were freed would make their way to Atlanta and wanted, they were very ambitious to learn all the things that had been denied to them 
Agnes Scott in Decatur is a kind of companion school to places like Georgia uh, Tech or to Emory for most of its history. Kristen, the school, Lucy Cop School, did have some famous alumni. Uh, Mildred Mell became principal in 1922. What was her experience with higher ed in the, the 1900s? So she was a very accomplished woman for her time. She um, actually did go on to become the uh, principal of the Economics College at Agnes Scott. Um, but prior to that, she took classes at UGA before women were officially admitted. Um, she she got a degree from the University of uh, Wisconsin. Um, and she returned to Athens, and that's when she became the principal there and started teaching the students. Uh, and then again went on to become um, P, uh, get a Ph.D. from um, the University of North Carolina in economics and sociology. So there was also Julia Flish. She became an advocate for women's education after she graduated from the school in 1877. What's her story? So Julia Flish, um, again, a very accomplished woman. Um, she she was kind of quoted as being the most outspoken proponent for um, women getting the right to vote in Georgia. Um, and she, she was... Um, she originally applied to to go to the University of Georgia for classes, and they denied her, um, even in the summer sessions. And then she eventually went on to go to Harvard. So we kind of messed up on that one. <laughs> okay, Fran, you're laughing. What's going on here? I just love Julia Flish. I think she's a marvelous character. And I also love the stories about her career um, as a labor organizer. Mm-hmm. So quite a shift from the days of Mildred Rutherford. Uh, oh, yes. So maybe the the idea or the fears that women with their own mind might make their own decisions came true. <laughs> Education always gives you options. That's one of the things that's great about it or threatening. The Lucy Cobb Institute did eventually close in 1931. What, why? Well, um, the, the Great Depression really took a toll on the uh, investments that came into the, the college. Um, and also at, when... They petitioned UGA for help, financial aid. They they didn't get it from them hmm. um, because of they they previously refused to um, combine with UGA, and um, so they they just kind of fell into financial ruin. Even though they survived the Civil War, um, the you know all those early conflicts, they they just couldn't meet the financial uh, needs. Kristen, I'm wondering how doing this research changed you as a student, or or what did it reveal, or surprise, or make you rethink your ideas about your own place in higher ed. So I, I'm very grateful for the people who came before me and, and, and fought for my right to be here today. Um, that was the biggest takeaway I took from it is that I, I can't take what I've been given for granted. You know, I need to take all the opportunities I can because women before me didn't really have that opportunity to be here and, and to do research at the university, much less even be on the campus, you know. What would you say or why would you say it's important to learn about this kind of history? What, what does it help us understand? Well, I think. First of all, it helps us understand that education does give us options. And the second thing I'd say is, for an important takeaway, I would suggest that every student go and ask their grandparents, what was your education like? We forget that that history, and we forget some important moments in our culture's history. So when you're presenting an academic paper like this on your research, it is going into a somewhat closed circle. How are you telling the story of Lucy Cobb School outside of that circle? I'm not. I hope Kristen is. <laughs> I actually got interested in it because uh, at Sini Stovall Chapel on the Lucy Cobb 
campus is a wonderful historic theater, and that's one of the central interests I have as a theater historian. Krista, who is, by the way, a Ronald McNair fellow, I think that's so cool. <laughs> Brother. Um, she, she asked me if there was something she could research, and I said, well, there's this school that has a historic theater. Go figure out something about it. And so she has been the one educating me. Fran Teague there, professor of theater, film studies, and English at the University of Georgia. We also heard from UGA student Kristen Gregg. You can find more about the Lucy Cobb Institute and women's education in Georgia at our website, gbbnews.org. And we should note, though the first white women were allowed into UGA about 100 years ago, women of color weren't able to attend the school until the early 1960s. We had a great conversation with Mary Frances Early, the first black student to earn a degree from the school on the show. You can find that conversation on our website, gpbnews.org. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. And from the classroom to the courtroom, coming up, explore the complicated history of the case that legalized segregation in the U.S. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. <laughs> 